This Mishnah is a continuation of the previous Mishnah, which discussed the prohibitions of delaying the payment and the wages of a worker. And this Mishnah tells us that it doesn't only apply to the wages of a worker, but it applies whether to the wages of somebody who has been working for you, and also applies to somebody who hired somebody else's animal, the Chutzchar Kalim, or somebody who hired somebody else's item, Yesh Mishum the prohibition, excuse me, the commandment of you shall give his wage on the day, that would apply in all these cases. And the prohibition also applies, the prohibition of that you shall not keep the wages of a worker with you overnight until the morning. So it doesn't only apply to a worker, but it applies to somebody who is doing something for you, whether it be his physical work, or giving you his item to use. Once you finish, finish using it, you have the rest of that day to pay for that item. Now, Emosai, when is all of this? When does one violate this prohibition? Only in a time, in a situation where the employee or the person who is hiring out his item, only when he claims his wages. He comes to the person who needs to pay him and he says, pay me my wages. He says that on the day that his wages are due, so if you don't give it to him, then you would violate the prohibitions which have been mentioned. However, if you don't even make the claim, then in overall of, the employer or the hirer would not transgress any of these prohibitions, because it's learned from the posuk which says that you shouldn't keep the wages with you. It's learned from that extra word that the prohibition applies specifically when you are the only person to blame. But over here, we could also place part of the blame on the person who's supposed to be paid, that he should have asked for the payment and demanded it on time. So in such a case where he didn't do that, the person who needs to pay would not transgress these prohibitions. On a similar note, if he passed over the claim to a shopkeeper or to a money changer, and that means that they had an agreement that instead of him paying the worker or the person who hired out his item, he would collect his payment from the local shopkeeper or the money changer. Perhaps the employer paid the shopkeeper to do this. Whatever it may be, they all agreed to this deal. But then ultimately, the shopkeeper or the money changer did not pay the worker or the owner of the item, the person who hired it out. They didn't pay him on that day. Once again, in the overall of, the employer, the person who was originally supposed to pay him, does not transgress his prohibitions, since again, he is not the only person to blame over here. Now, in the vast majority of cases, and certainly on a Midoraisa level, any oath which we find existing and based in, that somebody might make, is an oath in order to exempt him from paying. And we've seen a number of examples already in this Msechta. For example, a Shomer, a guard, would make an oath that he looked after the item properly in order to exempt himself from paying. However, there are certain oaths that one can make in order to actually receive money. And one such, exa- such example is an employee. And the mission says, an employee, a worker, who has been hired, so during the time that he's supposed to receive his wages, i.e. on the same day as he ended his work, nishbar, he can swear that he hasn't f- f- received his wages if he and the employer argue 
as to whether he has received his wages or not, he can swear that he hasn't received it, Venaitel, and thereby take his wages, and the employer would be forced to give him the wages. And the reason that the Rabbonon introduced this oath is because the employer was much more busy, and perhaps he had lots of other workers, and it would be very easy for him to forget if he had actually indeed paid a particular worker or not. So we do suspect that he is perhaps making a mistake over here, and therefore if the employee swears that he has not yet received his wages, then he would receive the wages again. Well, not again, this would be the first time according to his words. That having been said, if the time that he generally receives his wages has passed, it's been more than just the rest of the day that he finished his work, he can no longer swear in order to take the wages, and as long as the employer claims that he has already paid him, he would not be able to receive his wages. Reason being that the worker, the employer, might be suspected of making a mistake or something, but he would make sure that by the end of that day, he would be absolutely certain whether he has paid the workers or not. He would be reminded whether he had actually paid or not. He is not suspected ever of transgressing the prohibitions of delaying the payment. And therefore, if the employer and the employee are arguing about whether the wages have been paid, and they're doing this after the time has been up, after that day that he finished his work, so then the employer is not suspected at all, and he is the one who is believed. However, says the Mishnah, if there are witnesses that the worker made his claim already on that first day, and that the employer said that, no, I'm not going to give it to you, or I already paid you, whatever it may be, so if the worker can bring witnesses to the base then, and it's important to add the next day, he only has one additional day. After that, we already don't believe him anymore. But if the next day he brings these witnesses to base then, and the witnesses testify that they saw the worker make his claim on time, then then he would be able to make the oath that he has not yet received his wages, and he would be able to force the employer to give him the wages. Now the last part of this Mishnah discusses a Ger Toshov, which refers to somebody who is not Jewish, but he lives in Eretz Israel, and he has accepted upon himself to keep the seven mitzvahs with a noyach, the seven mitzvahs of non-Jews, or according to some, it might be enough that he just doesn't serve Avedizorah, he doesn't serve idolatry, which is only one of the seven mitzvahs with a noyach, there's a discussion what exactly the definition of a Ger Toshov is. Be as it may, the Mishnah tells us that Yesh Bemishun Biyomisitin Tzachoroi, the commandment of Biyomisitin Tzachoroi, on his day you shall give him his wage, does apply, as well as the continuation of that Pasuk, which is Veloisoral of Hashemesh, that the sun shouldn't, ra- shouldn't set without him having paid the wages, meaning if the worker is a Ger Toshov, the employer does need to pay him on that day. And this is learnt from the context of that posuk, which follows immediately after a posuk, which also talks about a worker, and the posuk there says that it's talking about a worker bish'orecha in your gates, meaning who lives among you. And so we learn from this extra word that the laws discussed in that part of the Torah apply also to a ger in, in terms of treating a ger toishov. However, the the other prohibition that you cannot keep with you the wages of your worker overnight until the morning, that does not apply if the work is a gertoshov, since the context there is talking about re'echa. It says your friend, and that implies that it's somebody who is similar to you, i.e. also Jewish. 
So that would not um, include a Ger Toishov. Mishnah Gimel, this final Mishnah of the Perak, is its own discussion, a topic in its own right, and that is when somebody lends money to somebody else, and he comes to collect that loan, and the person doesn't have the money, doesn't have enough money to pay back. So in order to make sure that that person will make the effort to get the money, the practice would be that the lender takes one of that person's items, or perhaps more than one. He might even take a number of items which altogether add up to the value of the loan. And he's not necessarily taking them permanently, but he's taking them until that person will pay him for the loan. And this item which he is taking is known as a mashkain, and the Torah lays out a number of laws which apply to somebody taking a mashkain. And these laws are delineated in this Mishnah. Hamav is one who lends his friend money, he is not allowed to take a mashkain from him except for via Bastin. And the truth is, this is only Majabonon. And the reason for this Majabonon prohibition is because of the next part of the Mishnah, that Vleikonis Levesa little Mashkoinai, it is forbidden with Eraisa for the lender to enter into the house of the borrower in order to take his Mashkoin. Shnema, as the Pasuk says, Bachutz When you are collecting the Mashkoin, you need to stand outside and wait for the borrower to take out a Mashkoin which belongs to him and give it to you. But you are not allowed to forcibly enter into his house to take the Mashkoin from him. And that is Midraisa, and in order to avoid this situation, Midrabonon, it's forbidden to even take it at all yourself. You might be led to just enter the house and take it yourself. So Midrabonon, you can't even do that, and you would have to go to Basin, and the Basin would appoint a messenger to go and collect the mashkain on your behalf, and even when the messenger goes to collect it, he would need to actually stand outside. Now the Torah talks about taking a mashkain from a poor person, and the Torah says that if it's something which is considered a basic necessity, for example, something which the poor person needs in order to sleep, although one is allowed to take it from him, he needs to return it to the poor person at night when he sleeps. And then the next day he can take it again. But the mission says, If the borrower only owned two items, or perhaps he had more, but these two equal the value of the loan, the lender should take one and leave one with the borrower who is a poor man. Now that doesn't mean that he can't take both of them, he couldn't possibly take both of them, but as soon as the poor person needs one of them, he needs to return it to him. So if, for example, we're talking about one thing which is needed during the day and the other item is needed during the night, so then it would emerge that he is constantly taking one and leaving one with the borrower. And let me give an example. Well, needs to return his pillow at night so that he can sleep, and he needs to return and make sure that the borrower has his plow during the day when he would use his plow. Alright, now what happens if somebody took a mashkoin from the borrower, and he took it not in order to take it as the repayment of the loan, but to encourage the borrower to make up the money to get the money in order to pay for the loan. What happens if the borrower then dies? It may if he dies. The lender is not obligated to return the item to the borrower's inheritors. Rather, he can now take this item and sell it, and the money which he gets from there will be the repayment of his loan. The Torah says, You would need to return the mashkain to him, to the borrower himself, but you would not be obligated ever to return it to the borrower's inheritors. Now, Mishim Gamliel says, 
even to the borrower himself, you're only obligated to return it to him for up to 30 days. But but from 30 days onwards, you already have the right to sell the item in Beistin, and then whatever money you receive from selling it, you're allowed to keep yourself. 30 days is the regular time which Beistin would give somebody whenever Beistin make a rule towards someone. They usually give him 30 days to fulfill it. So here this is, similar, this is a similar idea, that the borrower is given an extra 30 days to get the money to repay the loan, or otherwise this person will have the right to take his item and actually sell it, and take that money as the repayment of the loan. Alright, next law, Almona, a widow, whether she is poor or wealthy, it is forbidden to take a mashkin from her at all. And this is an explicit pasuk in the Torah, Shinema, as the pasuk says, and you shall not take clothing of an almona, of a widow, as a mashkain. Now, the simple understanding of the reason for this prohibition of the Torah, the Gemara explains, is because a widow is generally a poor woman. She hasn't got a husband who's making money to support her. She generally doesn't have a lot of money, which means that if you take a mashkain from her, you would end up returning it each day or each night. And people would see a man constantly going to this widow's house, day in, day out. They wouldn't realize that it's to do with a mashkain. And the widow, together with this man, might be suspected by others of inappropriate behavior. Why is he going to her house so often? And therefore the Torah said that it's forbidden to take a mashkain from a widow at all. Now, according to this reason, it would only apply to a poor widow. But if that widow happens to be wealthy, then it would be permitted. However, we don't use the reason, the logical reason for the Pasuk, to limit the law of the Pasuk. And therefore, since the end of the day, the simple reading of the Pasuk is that you cannot do this to any widow. That is indeed the law, and it will be forbidden to take a mashkain from any widow, however wealthy she is. Alright, and the last part of the Mishnah refers to another prohibition which is mentioned in the Torah, and that is one who takes a millstone which is used for grinding as a mashkain, over Belaysase, he violates a negative prohibition. And is actually liable because of two items. It's considered to be two different prohibitions if he takes the entire millstone. As the Pasuk says, that it is forbidden to take as a mashkain the rechayim, which refers to the lower part of the millstone, and the rechev refers to the upper part of the millstone. Now, because the Torah specifies both parts separately, we learn from there that there are actually two separate prohibitions over here. If one actually takes both of these parts, then he would violate two prohibitions. And the Mishnah explains, And they didn't just say this law and interpret it regarding a millstone, the lower part and the upper part of the millstone. The prohibition applies to any item which is used for the sake of preparing food, it is forbidden to take that as a mashkain. Shnema, as the Pasuk says, the reason why it's forbidden to take it is that he's taking as a mashkain something which is necessary for life. So we see that the thing that the Torah is particular about over here is the fact that this is used for preparing food which is a necessity of life. So therefore any other utensil which also is used in the preparation of food would be forbidden to take as a mashkain. The subject of the final parak of the Masechta is really a subject which is much more related to actually the next Masechta, Bo Basra, 
because the first part of Bov Basra discusses laws between neighbours. That is really also the discussion of this parak. We've mentioned before that originally Bov Akam, Bov Metzir, Bov Basra were all part of one larger Masechta, so it's not necessarily so surprising that the end of Bov Metzir is very much related to the beginning of Bov Basra. Habayis v'ha'aliyah shnayim a house, and really here the house refers to a lower floor, a lower story, which literally means an attic, but over here it refers to a higher floor, a higher story of the house, and they belong to two different people. One person owns the ground floor, the lower story of the building, and another person owns the higher story of the building. And Shenoflu, both the lower and upper story of the house fell, the entire building collapsed, and it's not clear how exactly the building collapsed. And the situation is that we don't know all of the stones which are left in the rubble, and everything which is there, we don't know which part of it belongs to who. If we knew how exactly the building fell, so we might be able to work out, as we'll see in the second half of the Mishnah, based on how broken the stones are, for example. But if we don't know how it fell... In the situation which we're faced by is a situation where we don't know who owns which part of what is remaining. Says the Mishnah, They split between them two, the wood and the stones and the earth. Earth was used to stick the stones together, like cement. They would split these between them, and they would split it based on how tall each story was. If each story of the house was exactly the same size, then they would split these things equally. But if one story was much taller, for example, than the other one, then they would split it proportionate to how big their story, their floor of the house was. Now, if it's possible, then they would see which stones are most likely to have broken. And like we mentioned before, this would depend on how exactly the building fell. If it fell inwards or outwards, that would make a difference as to whether we would assume that the higher up stones are the ones which broke because they fell from very high up, or perhaps the lower stones are more likely to have broken because they have heavy stones falling onto them. And this would depend on how exactly the building fell. So if we saw how the building fell, then we would be able to make an estimate of whose stones are the broken ones, and he would take those ones. If one of the two people involved recognized part of his stones, and he claimed that they're his, and we're talking about a case where the other person said that I agree with you regarding some of them, I do recognize that they were yours and not mine, but regarding the other ones which you're claiming, I don't know if you're right. I can't recognize them at all. I don't know if they're mine or yours. So this is very similar to a case of which we discussed earlier on in the Masechta, where if somebody makes a claim against somebody else that he owes him money, and the other person agrees to part of the claim, he can exempt himself from paying the rest of the claim only if he makes an oath that he doesn't owe the rest of it. So in this case... The other person has agreed to part of the other person's claim, and regarding the rest of the claim, he doesn't know. So he's not able to make an oath that the rest of it doesn't belong to the other person, because he doesn't know. And therefore, the Mishnah says, Neutlon, this person who made the claim of all of the, st- of the stones that he recognized, he is able to take all of the ones that he recognizes, and that would count towards the calculation of, ha- of stones that he's going to receive, if, for example, he's supposed to receive 50% or 60% of the stones, based on how big his 
part of the house was, so the ones which he's taking based on this claim would count towards that 50-60%. The lower story and the upper story of a house which belong to two people. And the Gemara explains that the truth is they both belong to one person. But that person rents out the upper story to somebody else. And then the upper story caved in a bit and it's no longer fit for the same level of use. So the owner of that property is really obligated to repair the floor of the upper story so that the person renting it can actually rent it and use it. But the owner of that building doesn't want to fix it. Says the Mishnah, The person renting the upper story is allowed to go down and live in the lower story. He can bring in everything that he needs and start living in the ground floor. Actually, until the owner of the building fixes the upper story for him. And the Gemara explains we're talking about a very specific case, where based on the language of the agreement between them, it's understood that in this situation he would be able to do this thing. In a regular scenario, he doesn't necessarily have the right to go into a different part of the owner's property. But based on the language of their agreement, this is understood to be included. And that's why he would be allowed to do this. Rabbi says, he argues on a small point, and that is that the owner of the building, the owner of the lower story, the, even though he owns the entire building, the point is that he hasn't rented out the lower story. He needs to give and provide and repair the ceiling of his lower story, which is also going to be the floor of the upper story. But the person renting the upper story, he's the one who would need to provide the plaster on top of the ceiling if he wants that. It's not totally necessary. He can have a floor without plaster, but if he, wa- if he wants to plaster the floor, he cannot force the owner to do that. Rather, he would need to provide it himself. 